Hello, and welcome to Don't Pee on Your Leg and Other Scientific Misconceptions, where we talk about scientific misconceptions we all have, and we hope that you learn something new about the world. I'm here with my co-host, Camden, New York Minute, Hanslick Burton. And I'm here with my co-host, Margaret, mother of succulents, Hanslick Burton. And joining us as our guest host this episode is Dr. Nathan Human Errors Lentz. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the show. show. We are so, so excited to introduce our guest this week. We're here with Dr. Nathan H. Lentz, a professor of molecular biology at John Jay College of the City University in New York. Nathan is the author of the book Not So Different, Finding Human Nature in Animals, and the book Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. Nathan, I, I guess I've never thought about it until now but i is the h short for human errors or is that <laughs> exactly how did you get my mom was a uh, very prescient uh, when they were <laughs> extremely uh, no no the, the h is after my grandfather right my middle name is harold oh cool gotcha gotcha great great question Camden. yeah really hard I, hitting yeah it's gonna get <laughs> just even softer from here um but yeah we appreciate you joining us so much um we've heard you on other podcasts like uh oh no uh, ross, ross and, and carrie mm-hmm. um very excited that you've all uh or that you've been able to join us i know it's been quite a whirlwind for those to get a peek behind the curtain uh we were emailing back and forth in february right before the world really turned upside down um and so i'm really excited that we've been able to sort of catch back up and um come out maybe here on uh when things have i don't not really Dare say down. settled down, but yeah, our, it's the world turned upside to. down and then it turned upside down again. So it should mm-hmm. be right side up, but it's still upside down. No. So I don't really <laughs> yeah. know how many times we can keep doing this. <laughs> um, Nathan, do you want to tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, I'm a, I'm a biologist, a molecular biologist by training. Um, and I, um, I've studied a lot of different things. I don't tend to stay on the same topic for very long because I have incredible attention deficit uh, issues. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I, I burn out on a specific topic usually pretty quickly. So I change fields every few years, which one thing I will say is a, is actually a really fun way to do science because mm-hmm. um, you're, you're always feeling like you're learning things and you're exploring new areas. And you get that, that feeling that you had when you were a graduate student and when you're really just peering b- behind things for the first time. But it's actually a terrible way to run a scientific <laughs> career. Um, it's very hard to like stay funded and stay relevant and stay at the top mm-hmm. of any field when you're constantly moving around. Um, but I've made peace with that part of it because I, I'm still doing good science and publishing it in good journals. And it's for me, it's much more about the exploration and the student training. My research is very student-centered. The students are at the forefront. I almost do really almost nothing uh, that doesn't involve students. So um, my graduate students and my undergraduate students, so I let them kind of pursue their interest. And as long as it sort of fits in with my general interest, we run with it. Um, so it's a great way to just stay fresh and, and, and keep having fun instead of feeling this pressure to, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm in the rat race at all, which, which research really can be academic research yeah. can be very competitive, uh, and very cutthroat. And, um, yeah. I, I've just found a way to liberate myself from, from that while still having a lot of fun. And then the other thing I do is I write articles and books, um, about the things I've learned along the way about various fields. And so human errors um, is a book that covers all kinds of different biological disciplines. And of course, I wouldn't present myself as an absolute expert in all of them, but I know a little bit about all of them enough to sort of peer into the literature and uh, make sure I wasn't, you know, making things up. Um, and uh, what I didn't know along the way is that I was preparing myself to be a science writer in, in that sense by, by knowing a lot, uh, I mean, knowing a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and as I tell my students, I think it actually makes you a better scientist to know a lot of things that aren't right in your discipline because you never know when it comes back and it is relevant, um, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to me- methodologies. So I bring methodologies that I learned in one discipline into another one. And that's one way that I've kept my research um, sort of impactful to the people in the discipline. So I'm about to publish uh, an article right now on you know evolution of the human genome and, and some new, new genes that we've discovered. 
And that wasn't a field that I was in until recently, but I brought with me uh, some methodology that I had in previous fields, and that's what makes my work particularly interesting and relevant. People who've been studying it for years are like, what can you add to this? We've been at this for decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, well, here, here's what I can add to it is this new approach. So um, that's it's it's a fun way to do science, and it keeps me stimulated. Uh, I, I thrive on novelty. Um, mm-hmm. uh, of stimulation, I get bored with the same kind of stimulation over and over. So it's a yeah, and, and you're allowed to do this kind of in, in academic science. That's what's great. If I were in industry doing research, um, this would never fly. <laughs> no. no. So that's the one of the great many things about academia. Well, and I know that one of the um, areas that you've worked in is forensic science, and as someone who is fascinated by the myriad of different ways that crimes are solved, the different techniques and approaches that are used. I'm curious to know how your work with forensic science intersects with your work with genomics and biology. How does that all fit together? That's a great question because it's it's really the story of my career because I joined the faculty of John Jay College, which at the time, the only major in, in our area was forensic science. So I joined the mm. forensic science oh. faculty in 2006. And so and I didn't know anything about forensic science at the time, <laughs> literally nothing. But that's the department is kind of that way. Half of them are career criminalists and the other half are basic scientists from all the relevant areas, chemistry, physics, mm. biology. And so uh, we bring that expertise to the discipline. And then what I found is that forensic science really moves forward um, because of academic departments like mine, because the vast majority of the forensic science um, that goes on in this country is done on casework. And they don't have time for research. They don't have a budget for research. No. Um, and so all the crime labs across the country, with a couple of exceptions, um, really don't do any research. They just take the state of the art and do what they can with it. So if we're ever going to advance, that's really what the role of academia is in forensic science, is to develop new technologies, new approaches, validate them, and then sort of introduce them to the practitioners and try to get them to, to nudge their way along. So that's been the one constant in my research interests is that there's always been a forensic project or two going on in my lab. Um, So the most recent thing I published was on forensic botany, uh, developing DNA-based tools for identifying species when you have trace plant residue. Because believe it or not, we actually don't have those. Um, If you find find trace residue from a plant um, at a crime scene, um, if it's pollen, they can usually do microscopy, but that's very subjective. It's it's, qualitative, so it's not DNA-based. and I thought we, you know, clearly we can do better than that. So I thought, you know, we would we look. So I basically it's a, bar, a barcoding project where we look at for DNA barcodes in various species, and then um, try to introduce a way to detect those barcodes and identify the species of origin for the plant residue. Wow. So that was, you know, that was uh, used all the skills that I already had. I didn't know anything mm-hmm. about plants. I mean, at that level. But I knew a lot about DNA and barcoding and mm-hmm. sequencing and all that. So it was just applying a skill set into forensic science. And each one of the forensic projects I've been a part of is like that. I didn't know anything about the, the need. Um, so I just brought the technology. And then, and then I work with other experts, you know, to try to make sure I'm doing something purposeful. Right. <laughs> right. That's such a fascinating intersection of all those different fields. Yeah, because I, I, speaking of intersections, and I appreciate this thought of, because I think in our world of being biology educators, we're often sort of, we kind of have to dip our toes into so many different, uh, you know, sub uh, areas of science. And when I think of finding a bunch of DNA, I think of when like folks will check rivers, right. For like environmental DNA to see like what kind of species are here. It almost sounds like you're doing that, but at like a crime scene to right. see like what plants existed here or like where might this person have been or that's exactly uh, right that's exactly what we're doing and um i did the same thing with decomposing um human cadavers where we were mm. looking at the community of bacteria that live um on the cadaver and how those change over time as a way to try to estimate the time of death basically the, the time since the um the, the post-mortem interval is the uh, uh technical term uh, mm-hmm. And we had, we had great success with that too. And we developed a model that um, based purely on microbial DNA uh, w- that was able to predict the postmortem interval within sort of two days of accuracy out to like five or six weeks of decomposition. And I don't know if you know anything about decomposition, but five or six weeks is really advanced. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's at that phase where an anthropologist would come in and say, well, it's at least a week, but it could be six months. You know, it, it was just <laughs> in this huge gray area. 
Um, mm-hmm. So we, uh, we, you know, and I, I'm not saying our tool will be the one that goes out into the field, but it really advanced the field to try to show that machine learning and artificial intelligence um, has the power to see into these microbial data sets, the, the DNA, and um, see the patterns. So that's what we did. That was that was an interesting project too. It was a, a bit gruesome, you know. Working yeah. on uh, human remains is uh, not something I had done prior to that. So, and now mm-hmm. I've done a bunch of it, but um, it was you'd have to have a stiff stomach for that. <laughs> well, it sounds like all of that, like you said, keeps your work and your your research fresh and exciting, and you you learn and develop even more new skill sets along the way. Um, right, right, and that's the fun of it. It's right. Yeah. I feel like a perpetual student. Um, and I always that's, loved, I always loved being a student. So that's the that, dream. Me too. <laughs> say that's, that's very refreshing to hear. You're talking to two people who love homework. Right. So. Yes. Hence this podcast. Yeah. We just give ourselves homework, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. I love your podcast. And uh, as soon as you had first made contact with me, I added it to my list and I've really enjoyed uh, the episodes oh. lately. So thank you. Thank you. Oh yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Well, um, maybe we should then head into our first segment where we talk about something that we're excited about. Camden, what are you excited about? Yeah, a bit of a, yeah, a surprise. I think my excitement really is we've been looking forward to this interview. Um, It felt like for a while it just wasn't going to happen. The world 2020 kept throwing a lot of things at everyone. And um, so just I'm very excited to be here live talking to you, Nathan, and you, Margaret, and just um, having this all work out. It's very been a, a long time coming i'm honored that you're still excited to talk to me even though <laughs> i've been like one of the few people you've talked to in person for the past six months so relationship <laughs> goals right yeah yeah <laughs> um well i'm excited as i was mentioning uh before we started recording i'm excited that it finally rained in seattle yeah so that the air quality got drastically better i'm not excited about where those particles are going um, into our waterways and things like that. And I'm not excited that the fires are still going on, but I'm at least thankful for the brief reprieve that we're able to go outside again. Um, Breathable air. Breathable air. Yeah. Yeah. You might be trading one set of problems for another, but the, yeah, yeah, the rains, I did hear that the the West Coast got some rain, so that's good. I hope it continues. I mean, we need a lot more of that, but Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything you're excited for, Nathan? What am I excited for? Well, um, I'm giving a talk in two days at the Center for Inquiry. And um, oh. so that'll be posted up on their website and on their YouTube channel. Uh, it, it basically is a, a story about my confrontation with the Discovery Institute, which is mm. the oh. home of uh, intelligent design. That's here in Seattle. Yes, that's right. I forgot. I always forget that. And so I had a, a pretty big dust up with them last year, a little bit of a dust up the year before that. But 2019 had a, a lot of battles between me and their folks there. So um, mm. the Center for Inquiry is a, a, you know, skeptical society and they are, um, you know, they love any, any scientists who take on the intelligent design community. They, they like to uh, reward them with big talks and stuff. So I'm doing that on Thursday. Uh, so it should be a lot of fun. It was supposed to be, of course, in person at their conference right. uh, in Las Vegas. Um, but it, hopefully next year we'll, you know, we'll, the conference will be back on because I gave a, a, a talk there last year. And um, uh, but this year, if I can just make a plug for the Center for Inquiry in general, they do yeah. they're doing Thursday webinars they're every Thursday evening. Uh, instead of doing the conference, the three day conference, they just sort of spread it out over the whole fall. So every Thursday evening, they they have a webinar and then the video goes right up on the, the website. So, it's you, you know, you have to register to attend live, but you, mm-hmm. you, you can, you can find catch it. it on YouTube later. Yeah, it takes them a while to, to get the video up, but then. Yeah, there. So I just would plug that the Center for Inquiry is doing great work to for the public advancement of science and skepticism, and to um, uh, really, really just public engagement around science and scientific issues. And I think that the the current state of affairs in our country never more was it needed uh, that yes. we confront our problems, you know, with this this uh, skepticism and, and analytical approach to uh, the world. Uh, data, you know everything we need to know is there. We just have to be able to understand it and get the public to understand it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one thing I said in the book, actually, Human Errors, as I said, is that all of the problems that we face right now have scientific solutions. I mean, they're, they're ready and waiting. I mean, whether it's yeah. energy or climate change or any, any problem that we're facing right now, we don't have any technological barriers to solve them. We just don't have the will. 
uh, yeah. to, to implement them. And um, so that's why the work of places like CFI and others to try to get the public to think more about these problems scientifically. I mean, even when it comes to like, you know, int- what we think of intract- intractable problems like racial justice, for example, mm-hmm. um, all the data we need to actually understand and solve that problem is there and it's available to us. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. I just w- listened to a Freakonomics podcast yesterday and I just came away with it going, we just don't want to fix this. That there's the, that's the only mm-hmm. explanation is that we just don't want to fix this anymore Yeah. Um, because we have all the information that we need. So I- I'm hoping to have a more science-minded public out of all this. That would be wonderful. Would well, it? I'm excited to tune into those Center for Inquiry uh, webinars. We'll, we'll post those up on our page as well. Um, good luck with that talk. It sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's head into the main segment of the show, which are our misconceptions. Um, Usually we each bring a misconception to share and discuss, but because we have an expert interviewee with us, we are going to be discussing some uh, misconceptions with Nathan. So Nathan, can you give us, you've kind of alluded to it, but can you give us a brief summary of your most recent book, Human Errors? Sure. So this is a book um, that is pushing back really against two misconceptions. So it's kind of Mm -hmm. perfect that we're approaching it this way. One misconception is that evolution produces perfection or or near perfection and that living things are perfectly suited for their environment. They're just perfectly well adapted. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's just not true at all. Evolution is a giant game of of being good enough um, and it doesn't solve all problems. Um, And, you know, it's one of these misconceptions that if you put it on a multiple choice question, most of us would get it right. But we but the the error still infects us as like a virus in our mind. What I mean is, um, we have this tendency, oh, well, if the organism has this on it, it must be doing something or else evolution would have fixed it. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. There's a lot of reasons why evolution has tons of blind spots. And imperfection is really the the hallmark. That's really the only constant in nature is imperfection. And it's a constant battle um, against competitors, against pathogens, against whatever. Um, And uh, there's a lot of trade-offs, a lot of good enough. We all just sort of scrape by, basically, all Mm -hmm. living things do in this this great competition. (laughs) And so that was one point, was just just to push back on the very idea of perfection. There's no such thing as perfection in nature. Um, And if you tried, like, as a mental exercise, like, what would a perfect organism be like? You know, would it, it, it finds all its food, it defeats all its predators, it uh, beats all of its pathogens, um, has as many children as it can. How long could it be like that before it ate yeah. all the food? And, you know, that was it, <laughs> right? So That's a really good point. Yeah, there's just no such thing as, as perfection. Um, you, in effect, you can be, very easily become a product of your own success. Um, as humans are a great testament to. Yeah. So that was one of the misconceptions. The other misconception that I really push back against is the idea that humans are in any way a pinnacle of evolution or a pinnacle of creation, however you want to put it. That, um, because, we, again, we would get this right in a multiple choice test. But most of us, even scientists, still think of human as the most evolved, as the yes. highest organism, as <laughs> everything else has been a march towards us, and then we're at the <laughs> apex. And, wow, that's just really not the case. We have a couple of skills that do set us apart. We're different. Obviously, we're the only ones that write poetry. We're the only ones that build skyscrapers. We have some unique skills, but really, and those are just really in our frontal cortex. Outside of that, the rest of our body um, is just as crappy as everybody else's. And in fact, <laughs> and in fact, what I argue in the book is that we are the most flawed species uh, from the neck down. Uh, actually, from the face down, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, and we're the most flawed. And the reason why is because our big brain has really taken the pressure off of our body to be perfect. So mm. in the, out in the wild, if you had poor vision, uh, you know, back in the day, you were done for. You and your bad eyes, you know, mm-hmm. you, you died and you took your bad eyes with you. Now we invent things like glasses. So, um, uh-huh. and, you, and you can map that onto all kinds of flaws in our body. So even if you, you know, I broke my leg when I was in uh, my ankle when I was in high school and it was a devastating injury. I, I would never have walked again. I would never mm-hmm. have walked again. I would have been very poor hunter gatherer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, well, even, and, and even before that. So, but what, what happens is I, I, I paid someone or someone paid someone to fix me and I'm fine now. Right. And so mm-hmm. um, what, now that's a kind of a bad example because you can't really evolve your way out of injuries. But the point would be that there's lots of weaknesses that, that are, that we fix other ways now by relying on each mm-hmm. other um, and, and with our ingenuity and all of this. And so our bodies, the, the selective pressure really hasn't been on our bodies to be perfect. Um, and so a lot of flaws have gotten through over the years. 
And ultimately, um, this is a happy story. My, my, my mother, when I was writing the book, she was just like, that just sounds so depressing. Why would you want to just <laughs> write a whole book about how poorly designed we are? And I said, well, no, the happiness is that we don't have to be perfect in order to survive, thrive, and contribute. We're still here. Yeah, we rely on each other. We have our big brains. And, and I'm glad that my body doesn't have to be perfect. I'm sure you are too, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is, I'm glad I don't have to live or die based on the, how well my body works. So it really is a happy story, um, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I really resonated in the book when you were talking about eyes and because I have very poor vision. And I often think about how, like, if I had been born 200 years ago, I would be, I'd be screwed. I wouldn't, what would I do? I couldn't see. Um, and that's basically what you had said too, um, but that we have developed these other techniques where we can get over those flaws in our eyes. Yeah, I like, I like what you say about we're, we're really a really cool prefrontal cortex and then just like the rest, just like <laughs> yeah. we kind of like deal, our brain is like, whatever, I'll drag you along with me. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. And, and um, like if you've ever gone to a zoo, uh, and, and I really, zoo, I have moral issues with, with zoos in general, but if you watch a group of chimpanzees, you, and you actually you can just do this on, on the internet, they have, they have live mm-hmm. cams, a lot of them do. Um, and if you look at, first of all, you'll be struck by how human they are and how, how much yes. they, the way they interact with each other. But the other thing you'll be struck by is how much better their body is than ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. a chimpanzee can be at the bottom of a tree. And in about one second, he can be at the top mm-hmm. um, using all four limbs and just dancing up that tree like, like we, it's, it's just amazing how, how sleek their body is, how strong it is. I mean, chimpanzees are about the same size as us weight wise, but they're four to five times stronger. I mean, they could just take you and, yeah. and rip you limb from limb. And yep. um, yeah, they, they can be quite dangerous <laughs> that way. Um, and it's just one of the things like they're, they're, every animal you can, every, there's tons of animals that can run faster than us, climb better than us, are stronger than us, quicker, better vision. I mean, we really are not, uh, we don't excel at any of those things. Although we're the only one that can run, jump, swim, climb. We can do all those things. We're all not specialists, it. we're generalists. And that's really what, mm-hmm. you know, that's up here. Um, you yeah. know, the, the ability to use your body in all those ways really doesn't, it, it, it's a brain thing. You know, people talk about muscle memory that's up here. You know, it's not mm-hmm. the muscles themselves don't have any memory <laughs> they're just cables. Right. Um, but the ability to use them is really, and that, that all comes from the brain. So we became the ultimate generalists, uh, which means we're, there's nothing that we're better at than any other animal, but we can do more things, uh, than other animals. And that's what really makes that, that was the beginning of our uniqueness. Yeah. I, I really appreciated that in your book um, that, yeah, it is, it is a happy story. It is at the end. Um, but just to back up a little bit, um, of course, your book deals a lot with human evolution. And we talked a little bit about um, the Discovery Center in Seattle. But what is your definition of evolution? Because I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about just what evolution is and what it, what it does. So how would you describe evolution and how natural selection fits into that process? That's a great question. I think it sets us up for where we might be going too. So evolution is just simply change over time and, uh, you know, based on, uh, you know, unequal, non-random reproduction, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's this idea that evolution implies like march towards perfection or that evolution implies improvement. It definitely does not do that. Evolution implies increasing complexity. No, 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 no. Plenty of organisms have gone the other way and yes. have gone towards <laughs> streamlining and simplicity um, because sophistication is great um, for navigating different environments. But if you want to really adapt to a single non-changing environment, all that sophistication is, is expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. So you want to adapt your way out of all that into, you know, which is usually not a good plan long-term, but um, yeah, so evolution just simply means change over time based on unequal reproductive success. And mm-hmm. natural selection is just one force. There are many evolutionary forces. Um, and in fact, the, the more we've learned uh, about evolution, certainly since the modern synthesis in, in the 1940s, one thing we've learned is that natural selection isn't even the most important one most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Natural selection is the most important one for the big evolutionary like innovations. Right. But those are few and far between. Um, Really, most of the other forces um, and and, and in between those big moments, natural selection just sort of tweaks, you know, it removes the bad mutations. You know, it's 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 trimming the hedges uh, is basically what natural selection does. 
Um, the other forces really are much more important moment to moment. And those are things like genetic drift and, um, uh, you know, any number of other, of the other evolutionary forces. And even just sexual selection, what we found, people talk about like differences among racial groups or, or it, all kinds of features of the human body uh, that mm-hmm. make us different than other animals. A lot of them really weren't advantageous. They mm-hmm. were just yeah. sexy, uh, for lack of a better <laughs> word, right? And so when, you know, it, it becomes almost like a, a loop where something becomes attractive, so it, it increases, which makes it more attractive, and it increases and so forth. And so these uh, preferences for various things really overpower a lot of whether or not they're good for us. Yeah. Uh, so sexual selection is often, is often at, at odds with natural selection, to be honest. I think that's a really important thing to point out that natural selection, like you said, is just one of the mechanisms um, where that change happens. Yeah. I, I remember when teaching my high school students, we would always, we would always uh, on Fridays have what we call Freaky Friday, and we would share some like bizarre thing of um, evolution. And it was usually, you know, it was like bird calls or wild plumage that's, you know, tens of times the length of this bird or it wasn't always birds, but it was this idea of like, yeah, sexual selection is such a driver. And to your point, like, and the opposite way, birds should not stick out like this. Mm-mm. Animals should not be doing, if you were designing this thing to not like, have all this extra energy or get eaten, you would not do this to this thing. That's right. Um, that's, that's right. Really a lot of adaptations that we see are helping a member of the species outcompete its, its fellow conspecifics. Mm-hmm. At the cost of the success of the group as a whole, <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's the tension. And and to be honest, that's that's what uh, sort of social cooperative um, uh, behaviors have sort of allowed us to move beyond. And so, in birds and mammals, um, in addition to competition, which of course is always going to be there, there's also a mm-hmm. lot of cooperation. And that's sort of that that really does set particularly birds and mammals apart from other living things in the sense that. They have managed to get past their competitive instincts in some mm-hmm. ways, um, and they care for each other. And they they've realized that cooperative groups outcompete selfish groups. That's the old uh, adage from from E.O. Wilson and, and and David Sloan Wilson. Uh, you know, first made that point, and we've seen that play out. And and it's certainly the human experience. That's really where we came in, and uh, the, our level of cooperation is so much more sophisticated um, mm-hmm. because of everything that the brain allows us to do. Uh, and that's why we came in and, re- and transformed every environment that we entered. Every environment mm-hmm. that we entered com- is completely different for us having been there, usually for the worse, um, right. <laughs> usually for the worse. But we, we just dominate every environment. And, um, and there were hominins, uh, you know, uh, non-human hominins or non-hopus sapiens hominins. And we just simply replaced them everywhere we went. Um, and in fact, humans, modern humans replaced each other like we would migrate out of africa in waves and every wave replaced the wave that came before it as we got more and more sophisticated and a lot of that wasn't genetic evolution it was just behavioral uh, Mm -hmm. cultural evolution you know they were just more sophisticated they had better tools and more language and um and so people talk about they've seen human remains in um australia for example that go back a lot further than uh you would expect and that's because those they didn't leave any descendants um, the, yeah. the new waves of people just kept coming and replacing everyone that came before them. So, so um, it's just a power to, it, or it's a testament to the power of cultural evolution over biological evolution. Um, yeah, I love that point. It also makes me think about, as we were talking about um, looking at chimpanzees and your point about, uh, or our misconceptions that we're sort of digging into today around evolution being uh, leading towards perfection or that humans are perfect. This idea of trade-offs is really interesting. And I, I'm wondering if you could hit on, are there a couple human, let's say, uh, errors or imperfections that are the result of these trade-offs of, because of where we are today, what did we lose in, like, we, we actually, like, have some sort of trade-offs that we have to deal with. Are there a couple that come to mind? Oh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, when we, anytime we started using our body in a different way, we lost um, some functionality. So. As we, um, the expression is, as we came down from the trees, um, it's not, not mm-hmm. quite how it happened, really, because um, the, we didn't leave the trees to go to the uh, grasslands. The grasslands mm-hmm. came to us because the forest contracted, right? So anyway, but we found ourselves in this way, so we began standing upright. 
Um, and our arms are far weaker for that. I mean, we we can't climb trees. We're pathetic tree climbers, now, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And that's because we just started evolving for different things. We have much shorter and much weaker arms. And, um, and, and, and our knees and our, for example, especially our knees is a good, is a good one. Um, all of a sudden, they were dealing with the brunt of our weight, uh, two limbs instead of four. So we were, they were dealing with much more. And um, when you're moving around on the ground, you have to change directions quickly uh, if you're you know, being chased, chasing or being chased. And mm. our knees were not designed for that. Uh, they can do it. I mean, we can run very fast. Um, but if you cha- turn on a dime quickly, like plenty of other animals do, by the way, um, yeah. you, you'll, you'll tear your ACL. And that's what, that's what of, of course, has happened now is as our bodies have gotten even bigger lately, uh, we're tearing our ACLs left and right because they're just not designed uh, for what, they're, what we have them doing now. Um, and that part of that was upright walking. Part of it was uh, the transition towards running. We're the only species uh, in, in, in pr- among primates, excuse me, um, that's really uh, adapted to run. We, we are runners by, by nature. And, uh, and in fact, uh, our big butt, uh, gluteus maximus, um, <laughs> is almost entirely for running. The, um, you don't use your, your, your glutes very much at all when you're walking, o- almost not at all. Um, mm. But you do rely on them heavily when you're running. And that's why we have these, these nice big butts that the chimpanzees don't. If you ever look at a mm. chimpanzee, I mean, they have almost no butt at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I've always said that. <laughs> <laughs> You're so disappointed in it, <laughs> but uh, no, but it's true. So, um, but you know, that was one advantage that we had. But then we lost functionality elsewhere. You know, in our, our right. ankles, our big Achilles tendon. It's great because it allows us to sprint. But it's the biggest weakness you can imagine. Because if you cut that one tendon, you're done. Like you, done. you cannot yeah. walk. And so it's and it's exposed. It's right on the back. But the mm-hmm. the Achilles tendon is not so vulnerable in any of the other apes, for example. Um, and it's because we use it in this very specific way and our big toe, same thing. So all of the power of your steps goes through that big toe. And eventually Mm -hmm. the big toe is where you apply the force to take that step. Lots of muscles are involved, but the big toe bears the brunt of it. Um, if you, if you lose your big toe, it, you will never, you'll certainly never run again. You'll kind of hobble around walking. You could lose all the other toes. Yeah. (laughs) Those are fine. But the, but the big toe, it's all goes through there. So these trade-offs, you know, they create vulnerabilities. You lose, you lose other functionality. Um, even with our diet. So we, we got this ability to, um, eat lots of different things and not many mammals can, can survive on such a rich diet. So it's such a different kind of diet. I mean, if you look at Mm -hmm. the Inuit people of the, of the North and, um, and you compare that to, to, um, you know, tribes in Africa, they have almost completely non-overlapping diets. I mean, just mm. almost completely non-overlapping, totally different kinds of foods. And, and the, the, the macronutrient ratios are just totally wildly different. And they're both perfectly healthy on their respective diets. You're not mm. going to find mammals that can do that. No. You know, they yeah. can, you know, a little bit of specialization, but in one species to have that much diversity. But what's the cost of that is that now we require diversity in our diet. If yes. you don't get a lot of different kinds of things, you're in trouble. You're going to be malnourished. So it's, it's every, almost every benefit you can think of came with some kind of a cost. So we've talked or you, you've touched on a, a lot of those errors um, that, that uh, are in your book. But of all of the errors that you, you've written about or, or researched, which one seems the most imperfect? Like which one struck you as like, wow, I can't believe that we're able to continue with this issue. Some of them just seem really stupid, right? Like, how, how yeah. does it happen? Well, it's funny because I get this question almost any time I do an interview is what, what's the biggest flaw? And I give a different mm. answer almost every time because yeah. it depends <laughs> on my mood. What am I suffering from at the moment? So if like, I remember the first time I got this question, I was sniffling audibly during the interview. I was mm. like, well, <laughs> since you asked, um, <laughs> at the current moment, our, our sinuses um, are my biggest beef. And in fact, I'm actually in the middle of writing an article right now with a couple of ENTs and others that... Basically, the thesis of our sinuses in general are pointless. I mean, there's one giant vestigial organ is our, our sinus cavities. We, we don't need them the way that other mammals need them. Um, and all they do is potentially cause infection. Um, mm-hmm. So I always say that the sinus cavities are very poorly designed, and the, and the fact that we really still have them is, is a flaw. But right now, it's very hard to think of any flaw that's more, um, that's more harmful to us as a species than our reliance on anecdotes over data. So we believe something that we heard on the internet, right? From a dude on YouTube, we believe him 
rather than mountains and mountains of data that's objective and verified. And, and uh, this is something that's always been with us, the power of the anecdote uh, over the power of data. We, we believe anecdotes over data. And the reason why is that we, can, we, we have a reson we have an emotional resonance with people. We don't have an emotional resonance with numbers. And so if somebody we know tells us something, we will believe that over somebody that we don't know who has a million data points behind that. And, um, and science, you know, ultimately is supposed to be the, the victory of data over, um, over anecdote. Um, and here we are. Yeah. I mean, clearly, uh, this is a flaw that we haven't managed to, to get a handle on. And, and in fact, it's ascendant right now is this, uh, this ability to s simply disbelieve anything, you know, write it off as fake news, whatever, uh, yeah. disbelieve anything that we don't want to believe, that we, that we think there's an, uh, an interest in us not believing it. And it's also conscious. That's the worst part of it. So nobody thinks they're they're doing it. Um, mm -hmm. No, you know, you. In fact, we're absolutely convinced that we're not doing it. And um, and each one of us, I, I include myself in this. I've been guilty of lots of this. Um, and mm -hmm. just knowing about it doesn't doesn't get free me from it. I wish it did. I wish it were that simple. So that's the thing that's holding us back right now. And as we we stare down a lot of potential cataclysms. Um, I'm not sure how to convince people, you know, but again, maybe I'm just biased too, because I, <laughs> I don't know what the answers are here, but I think that's our biggest flaw right now is that we, we make decisions, we make really bad decisions. I mean, obviously I, the, the state of the world, that's why I'm, I'm thinking that right now. Oh, but, of course. Yeah. I feel like I, um, I, those, the two examples that come to mind right now of those anecdotes over data is one um, you know, oh, I don't know anyone with COVID-19. I don't know anybody who's had it. So it, I don't mm. think it's as big a deal as people say. Or the other example is like, well, I don't know anyone who's died by police violence. So it's not, it can't be happening to the scale that it is. Yeah, I remember I, like, I was arrested last year or, or confronted last year and I did what the cops told me and everything was fine. Everything yep, was fine, everything yeah. Worked out. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I think it's such, and ultimately I think, uh, a key like nugget to why we started this podcast was like all of these right are they're misconceptions and they're so they're so hard to break i mean we talk to our families our friends folks who listen to this podcast and who still will catch themselves saying the seeds are the spiciest part and that's you know innocuous it doesn't matter right um of the pepper but it it is so i think that's what's fascinated us and still I think you're hitting as to the real meat to why it's important is that it's so hard to break even when you know the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and of course, and what we're talking about here, especially in um, the world of coronavirus and uh, police violence and racial injustice is that we, there's also so many other biases that make us not want to look at what the truth is. Um, let alone, even when you know the truth, it's hard to break. Right, but right. then all the things that get in the way of that. Yeah, I um in my not so much in human errors, but in my first book, I talked a lot about empathy and how empathy develops. Mm. And we, clearly, we have a huge lack uh, of empathy right now, <laughs> especially cross group empathy. Um, mm -hmm. And I was I was talking with with a friend of mine recently, an African American friend of mine, uh, and it basically was coming up uh, how the the man who was who who was birding in Central Park and and had the yes. police had the police called on him. And how he reacted with so much compassion towards the person who had really endangered his life um, yes. by calling the police on him for no reason. But, but he reacted with such compassion. And the point that we were circling around was that African Americans have a tremendous amount of empathy for white people because they're surrounded by white culture. And, and as mm -hmm. children, and you develop and you grow and you consume white people. So you're going to have a natural tendency for it towards empathy. And white people don't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and white people raise their children around just white people and white topics and white shows. And they see a book with African-American children on a library. They think, oh, that's for black families. It's like, mm -hmm. no, that's for your family, too. You, <laughs> it's much more important for white people to read the stories about the black family than it is the black family, even well, maybe not more important, but at least as important. Um, yeah. And so if you have white children, I would say buy them a black doll, please um, mm -hmm. read them uh, stories about black families and black scientists and um, and that's how you develop empathy is exposure to, to other people who are different from you through childhood. Um, and I think right now the biggest racial gap that we have is an empathy gap where the mm -hmm. majority, the dominant culture, the majority culture uh, can just simply exempt themselves um, from, from cross-group 
exposure and therefore not develop the empathy. And when you're an adult, it's almost too late. It's really hard mm -hmm. to learn this later in life. But when you're a child, you'll naturally develop that empathy. And that's why you do see so much more empathy from the African-American community towards the white culture. As angry as they are right now, they have so much empathy for the individuals um, mm -hmm. because they're exposed to white people their whole life, whether they want to be or not. Whereas white people can simply self-segregate very easily. I mean, that's what that's how suburbs were invented, right? right? Yeah. Is so that yeah. white people could escape. And they right. did, and they took all their empathy with them, basically. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think that is something that would surprise a lot of people reading your book and having that whole section on bias in there, because I don't think a lot of us would associate like the the process of developing bias as an evolutionary process at all. Um, so I really love that inclusion of this. This impacts every part of us, every part of who we are. Right. And I, th I think you, you I'm glad you brought that up to bring it back to evolution um, that, yeah, bias and, and empathy and that um, and racism, to be honest, uh, xenophobia is evolutionary and ingrained. It's part of who we are to find a group and identify with that group at the exclusion of another group. That's how that's how groups work. Right. If everyone's in the right. group, then it's not a group. Right. And so the idea that you have different groups and that you'll identify these to the point of, of dying for them, potentially um, at the exclusion of another group. But who defines what the group is? That's changed. That's not ingrained. Skin color, mm -hmm. for example, uh, or a national flag or anything like that, that's not programmed. What yeah. is programmed right. is the idea to seek a group, to look for a group, and, consider, and center yourself in that group at the exclusion of other groups. So some of this we'll never fully get away from. But that's why I said cross-group empathy, cross-group contact. That you mm -hmm. can do. I'm not saying we should just all be one monoculture and dismantle right. the separateness um, no, 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 no. I, I mean, that's the, the vibrancy of our culture is that diversity. Um, Absolutely. Uh, but having exposure, cross-cultural exposure disarms um, that bias and it prevents um, the it prevents the prevention of empathy um, cross cross-culturally. So, you know, and it, it's um, it's a challenge for white people because uh, minorities will that will happen anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you have to really go out of your way to be completely segregated as a, as a minority in the United States. But, um, I mean, we, we segregate wealth really easily like that. That's, mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. but if you're, if you're, if you're in a white community to really make sure that your children are exposed cross-culturally, you have to make an effort and, yeah. you know, white people don't want to do that. <laughs> they don't yeah. want to be told that they have to do something, uh, like that. So. So I'm a yeah. little pessimistic sometimes. <laughs> that, yeah. <laughs> I, I think in the world we are in that. I don't know if it's pessimism so much anymore as like that you are that is the reality that and these are the things I think folks are hopefully starting to really grapple and with and understand more than they have before. I think that would be progress. Uh, yeah. So I, I'd say the same thing, because uh, in the various you know, protests and riots and demonstrations that I've been a part of in, in 20 years of being an adult, um, it, it's different now than it was. Mm -hmm. uh, more people get it. More people want to get it. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm hearing conversations in, among 70 and 80 year old white people that they're, you know, that I who never cared or at least that age group didn't care before. So, I mean, I think mm -hmm. I am cautiously hopeful if we can get through yes. the next 45 days or whatever yeah. it is um, <laughs> yeah. and get towards, uh, you know, because right now there's fires that have to be put. Out. I mean, we, we, mm -hmm. we're literally on fire as a country. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and so we got to tend to that, but I'm, I'm hopeful about the future uh, just because you got to get out of bed somehow. Right. Yes. 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 Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, speaking of, of people and, and things that, um, some misconceptions that I think a lot of people have. I think the biggest question that people who don't fully understand what evolution means, the biggest thing I hear is, well, if evolution is a valid um, process, then why are there still monkeys? My students love that question. Yeah, I hear it I'm all sure the that time. I, I, that's got to be on the top of the list of all the like Discovery Institute creation. Right, right, right. Yeah, all this so stuff. Yeah. here's the best retort is... Okay. Well, there's a there's a, a a snarky one and there's a <laughs> respectful one. Let me give the respectful one first. So, okay. okay, well, we know that dogs were domesticated from wolves. Why are there still wolves? Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, that's because a small group of them were taken and evolved out. And we're like, yeah, that's speciation. That's how it works. <laughs> the whole species doesn't march along to have to form something new. 
a little mm. group comes out and is separated usually geographically in some way and then is under different selective pressures and, and goes a different direction. The ancestral group may or may not still be there, may evolve in its own trajectory. They're spinning off all of these things. And that was really the insight that Charles Darwin had too, right? When in, in the, uh, the archipelago islands, the, the Galapagos, um, mm-hmm. he, you know, he noticed, wow, there's a population of finches on the mainland. They're sort of similar to these other ones. And maybe some groups, you know, and that's, that speciation is a small population gets separated from the big group and then, and then has a different destiny. Um, so, uh, so that's why there's, there's monkeys and apes and, and, and we have the, the ancestors that we evolved from that are closest to chimpanzees don't exist anymore. And that's mm-hmm. generally how it works because yeah. everything goes extinct eventually, but they're descendants. So some, some of them evolved out and became chimpanzees and some of them evolved out and became us and our, our extinct relatives. And uh, yeah, so speciation generally works with a small group founding a new a new way. But let me tell you the snarky way you could say it. Yes, please. <laughs> if God made Adam and Eve from dirt, why is there still dirt? <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't take all the dirt. I was like, yeah, exactly. He took a little bit and then that became something and the rest of it was still there. I mean, if that's how they if you want to use that analogy, you know. I, I love both those pocket. answers yeah. for, for different <laughs> Right, different audiences. Yeah. <laughs> different audiences, depending on how late in the day it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I know, Camden, you were wanting to know about um, design. I'll, I'll let you ask it, but. Oh, about designing the perfect human? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, and I guess that's sort of like the flip of the book is, so if you were going to design this perfect human, like what's the and i guess this is like a roundabout way of asking what are the biggest flaws that we have what would you change what are the it, talking would about you change streamlining anything? would you or maybe that's the point maybe we don't change anything right that's the point because if you say the perfect organism it depends on what you want the individual to do um and so if i wanted to make us run faster i can think of tweaks you know or, or to make us mm-hmm. um more impervious to injuries while mm-hmm. running I, i'm a runner myself so i could think of you know, some things I'm not wild about with my knees and ankles and stuff. Um, why yeah. do we have so many ankle bones in the first place? Right? It's, they're <laughs> mostly fixed, right? They don't mm-hmm. really move against each other. So all they are are potential points of sprain and strain. Problems. So mm-hmm. why, why do we have them? So I would think of that. But, I mean, generally, not everyone is running their top priority. So, you know, so it just depends on what you want. What we have is a collection of adaptations that make us really good at a lot of different things or, or kind of good at a lot of different things. If I were to firm up the ankle for running, I would make us probably even worse at climbing, for example. Now, climbing doesn't mm. matter to me, but if you're a rock climber, you know, you wouldn't be happy with the changes that I might design because I want a stiff ankle, but they want a flexible ankle. So they're really in tension. Um, and that's really how evolution is all about that tension, right? You have a rope and you have this push-pull and um, people are like, wouldn't it be great if we had a bigger brain? I'm like... I don't think there's a woman who's given childbirth who would agree <laughs> that a bigger brain yeah. is the way to go, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We have, yeah. a, we have about as big a brain as we could without taking the whole species down with us in childbirth. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, and until recently, it. childbirth was very dangerous. It was just mm-hmm. really, really dangerous. This modern idea of, oh, women have been doing it for millions of years. I'm like, yeah, and they usually made it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, often yeah. they survived it, but they did. I mean, it was the leading, if you made it to reproductive age, the leading cause of death, if you're a woman, was childbirth. Um, mm-hmm. It was absolutely the leading cause of death on the underside of that, meaning most people didn't make it through. Like, you were born, but you died in your first year of life a lot um, yeah. in the prehistoric age. Not, not necessarily in childbirth, but in that first year. We are born yeah. incredibly incapable. Um, we're yeah, the, yes. <laughs> really the most incapable of, of the mammals. If you've ever seen, of the... Of the um, placental mammals anyway if you see that when when um most animals are born they just kind of shake themselves off and walk around and they're i mean they're ready to go they're ready to go they i mean Mm -hmm. they land on their feet sometimes it's it's Mm -hmm. really (laughs) remarkable and then we are just pathetic we can't do anything and um we can't do anything for a long time and part of that is that we are born really um way too early um we're not fully cooked we really Mm -hmm. needed another trimester we needed four um, trimesters, I would, they wouldn't be called trimesters anymore, but really yeah. another three or four months would have been good uh, to firm up the immune system and, and other things like that. Um, but then the brain would simply not fit. And right. 
Um, and the tension there, of course, is that narrow hips is good for walking, for that striding yeah. gait that we do where your center of gravity really does not bounce back and forth to the left and the right. Your center of gravity is pretty much the same place as you walk forward. And that's what allows us to be so efficient at walking and running um, is that narrow pelvis. Our legs pretty much go straight down uh, and actually they come inwards uh, at the knee. So uh, you, can't, you can't have that if the birth canal were to get any larger than it already is. So, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, what's the trade-off here is that we're born needing a tremendous amount of parental care. Um, mm. And what you want it, but here's the upside. I, I hypothesize, along with a couple of other adaptations, that that was the sort of the birth of the family, the family unit. Because mm. um, if you wanted your offspring to survive in this incredibly incapable form, it took a lot of parental care. And so mm -hmm. we had to have two parents plus whoever was around, kin or non-kin partners, to help care for the young generation. There was really no other way um, to get through it. So I think the creation of family, a family unit, not just you know nuclear family, but the uh, people who are invested in your success as a group, wow. um, mm -hmm. I th part of that is the incapability of, of young. Uh, another one is concealed ovulation. That, that also helped, helped the men stick around a little bit. <laughs> um, um, not knowing when their, their partners were, uh, fertile helped a lot. And, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that that sort of created a glue, a social glue that helped us uh, this way. So again, th th what seems like a negative could be a positive. And, and I love that. And so maybe it takes a village is uniquely human for those reasons. Right, right. And, and well, well, so it is uniquely human, but it's not in the sense that other species do what's called allo parenting, where mm. they will care for young, even if they're not their own. Uh, uh, that's another misconception. People think only humans really care about people that they're not related to. That's definitely oh, yeah. not mm -hmm. true. That is absolutely mm -hmm. not true. Yes. Um, there's a species of, of barbary macaques that alloparent as a rule, like they don't even form family units biologically. They, they're all, oh, wow. they all will care. They'll pick up a child and start nursing it, carrying it around with no regards for who. Or if that's their own. Yeah. So they really mm -hmm. have, they've really uh, succeeded in that, that alloparenting. Allo but within apes, there is strong preference towards um, your own uh, biologically. And so um, uh, humans really did take that and expand it to a, a cohesive unit. Um, and I think um, that had a lot to do with why we're successful is mm -hmm. that we don't, um, you know, killing each other's children. <laughs> right, um, you right. Know, uh, we, but small groups, and that's the thing is this only works in small groups. And that's why we do tendency to have that um, xenophobia, that this is mm -hmm. our group and okay, mm -hmm. we'll all work together to share resources, but that's definitely not our group. So we have to, um, so again, upside, downside. <laughs> yeah. Lots of trade-offs, but we're still here. We've, we've made it this far. Um, well, thank you again for, for chatting with us. Um, we're going to wrap up with uh, something that we've been consuming recently. So something that you've watched or read or listened to. Kim, and what have you been consuming recently? Um, well, recently I was, I got recommended through Spotify. Uh, this podcast called Bird Note. Um, it's just two minutes and it's really beautiful. It's just some, it, they talk about birds and they talk about like bird migration or they'll talk about a specific, they'll talk about the Arctic turn and why, um, speaking about bones, how their bones are similar and homologous to our finger bones and how they've actually lost finger bones and how evolution has worked, um, to help certain animals adapt to fly. And, um, it is only two minutes, but the audio quality is really nice because there's just like the Arctic turn. It's just, you're just hearing shores and you're hearing bird calls. And oh, it's just like nice. a very calm thing while you get to learn a little bit more. Um, so it was a recommendation that it caught me too with the two minutes. I thought, oh, I can give it two minutes. Um, and I listened to like four of them. But yeah, so bird note. Cool. Sounds fun. Well, speaking of how have humans survived this far, um, I watched a documentary oh, no. this week. <laughs> Um, on HBO called Class Action Park, and um, it's about Action Park in New Jersey. In oh yes, do, have do you, you heard know of this it one? from up of there? Of course, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. It Just is amazing. The, the the lack of regulation on these rides and New Jersey is a seems like a special least... form of evolution based on what this uh, documentary showed us. <laughs> Just the amount of injuries that happened and the 
it's interesting to see how fondly folks that went there remember it. Um, yeah, did, did you get a chance to watch it? I haven't, Nathan? but I, I, I'm familiar with Action Park, first of okay. all. But uh, <laughs> I've heard about the documentary. And I haven't seen it, though. I, I would recommend it. It's not relaxing by any means, but it is fascinating um, to see how, pe- how fondly people remember it for having such a harrowing time uh, yeah. there. Nathan, what have you been uh, consuming? Um, let's see. Uh, maybe I can do a book recommendation. Um, <laughs> do you, are you familiar with any, either of you with the work of Harriet Washington? She's written a few no, books no. now. Okay. So she has a, she had a book out last year. Um, and it's called a terrible thing to waste. And it talked about all of the, it's basically a book on environmental justice and how unregulated, it's probably about regulation about how unregulated the United States is in uh, terms of like pollution and, mm-hmm. Um, pollutants also and, and how they appear in, in whether it's water or air or whatever. But if you look at how it affects the population, it is not evenly, right? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely not. Totally stratified by race. And so black communities, even middle class or, or, or upper middle class black communities are much more likely to be built uh, or, or to have a, a, a landfill or a toxic waste dump, uh, in, in toxic, toxic waste dump in their backyard, um, mm-hmm. and she goes through just all kinds of industries and their effect on um, African American communities specifically, it, even even separate from socioeconomic status, because we have a tendency in this country to just chalk it up to well, those are poor neighborhoods. They're not black mm-hmm. neighborhoods. They're poor neighborhoods. It was like okay, well that's true. What, first of all, why do those have to always go together? Secondly, mm-hmm. um, even when you have middle class uh, African American neighborhoods, uh, they suffer from a much higher degree of uh, environmental pollution. Um, and she also, and that led me to read some of her earlier books uh, of medical apartheid and the history of experimentation on African Americans yes. in this country and all this. And and these are the kind of books that um, that you, you just you can't argue with. It's just information. It's just data. And you ha- and when people right. read this, and you just say it's an assault. It's an all-out assault on the population uh, from all kinds of fronts. And you don't think that a plastic factory has anything racial about it, but it does in our it country. Does. In our country, mm-hmm. it absolutely does. And so books like that, I've just, you know, because I've read the, you know, the standard anti-racist reading list. Um, mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot from it, and, it, and I've gained a lot from it. But what I like to read is also some of the, the, the ancillary things that in my field of science and how science is not neutral on these things no. and we, we science loves to exempt themselves yeah. from these conversations well that's a problem for the sociologists to study or whatever and, and we have a meritocracy in science and um it's just not true it really infects everything that we do sometimes it's just much more covert and right. um the overt racism at least you can spot it the covert racism you can't always and so um i recommend and she has other books as well but i really recommend harriet washington to all your listeners if you want to find even new ways uh that racism rears its head in this country uh and there's some success stories in the book too Mm -hmm. that's that's what i like about it is is she provides every problem has a solution um and a lot of cases uh she provides how how simple it would be i mean just taking lead out of paint made a big difference and we we knew Mm -hmm. we know that the, the hit that iq takes when kids um, not that IQ is a great measure, but she, she sure. does, she dissects that as well. Um, mm-hmm. insofar as we have IQ as a measure, lead, uh, based paint, uh, you know, cost African-American communities, you know, 10 points on their average IQ. Um, so, but that's out now and, and their regulations. Right. And so, it, it, you know, each of these problems that science has created, science can solve. Uh, but we have to know about them. We have to expose them. We have to talk about them. And ultimately, we have to vote based on on those. I I am looking forward to reading that because yeah. as an environmental educator, I have been trying to incorporate that um, environmental justice piece. Like you said, it's it's not separate. Um, solving the climate crisis and all of these things are just inextricably combined with racial justice issues and disparity and things like that. So. I will give that a read. Yeah, a terrible thing to waste. That's the name of uh, uh, the one, uh, the, her most recent book, which is on environmental justice. Well, I appreciate real quick on the point you made about sort of the soft science of science likes to exempt itself, or specifically the hard sciences of physics and chemistry and biology like to exempt themselves from this idea of racism and racial justice. Like that's not for us. And I think, like you said, and from someone who also mentioned medical apartheid, I didn't realize it was the same author, um, shared that, you know, it's really soft to think that humans aren't biased and think that humans who become scientists aren't biased and that science isn't biased in the same ways that humans are. 
Um, and so that I think that's really fascinating thinking about how these worlds always intersect, even when people are so sure that they don't. So thanks for those recommendations. Yeah, yeah. You, you bet. You bet. And um, something you said just reminded me of uh, 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 another book that I read recently. So I think it came out last year, the year before is Carl Zimmer's book. She has her mother's laugh. Um, and it's big book. It's a tome on um, basically the history of genetics and genetic research, mm. uh, getting all the way up to the current age of epigenetics and genome sequencing and, and everything going on now. Um, but he talked about the history of the field of genetics, and he there's no way to tell that story without some real racist yep. stuff in it, um, mm-hmm. especially in our country, but, but uh, in England as well. I mean, just racism was at the heart of the, the study of genetics. Uh, human genetics, yeah. uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he does not spare that. I mean, it would be so because when you read genetics textbook, because I teach genetics, that's that's mm-hmm. the main undergraduate class that I teach. Um, it would be so easy to just go from pea plants to domesticated dogs, <laughs> and now we're you know we're off and running. Um, but you can't skip that stuff. Um, no, no. You really and and people don't think um, they think oh well it's good of you to do it. No no no. If you don't do it, you're harming. Uh, society. If you don't teach the stuff that you, that that makes you uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you're allowing a generation of students to go through without this knowledge. You haven't deconstru- You have the opportunity to deconstruct, and you're not going to solve racism yourself in this class. But you can play a part, and it's not that hard. It's mm-hmm. really not that much to ask to just insert some of this and make sure that it, whether it's white students or not, make sure that they they understand this and that. Um, that we have to be vigilant because otherwise, you know, it's like, ah, it's not my problem. So I'm not really involved in that. I've never been racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've never mm-hmm. done it. I've never hurt. I've never, you know, lynched anyone. And, and, um, mm. and people don't realize that um, at this point, once you have the system in place, it runs itself. Right. It doesn't right. it doesn't rely on each one of us making racist choices every day. Mm-hmm. It will just perpetuate that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, if you have, you know, two dogs, one starts the race before the other one. Well, you have to do something to equalize it or else the other one will always just stay in front. Right. So mm-hmm. it's the same thing here where you can't just exempt yourself and say, I don't make racist decisions. It's like, OK, well, what you do then if you don't make anti-racist decisions then what you do is allow it to just keep running. And, mm-hmm. and it will just keep running because the system reinforces itself without even the need of an intentional act to do it. Uh, and so when you're designing your genetics curriculum, you're making a choice yeah. of yeah. what to include and what not to include. So, you know, you have a choice to be anti-racist or not. And if you're not, then you can't say you've never made a racist choice. Yeah. <laughs> right. You said that book's called... Um... Her mother's, she has her mother's laugh. Yes, she has her mother's laugh. Okay. And it's the idea of dispelling what's genetic and what's not. And it was funny. I went, he, he had a book launch party and I went and I asked a question. I said, well, my, my children are adopted. So what are they getting from me? And, <laughs> um, and he, but he went through the, the, the yeah. role of epigenetics and the cultural thing. And like I said, cultural yeah. evolution has long since outpaced biological evolution in our species. Yeah. So my kids are getting more from me than they are from their biological parents in, in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, I mean, not their eye color, but, you know, other things like that. So it's um, and heredity is really what we're talking about, not just Mm -hmm. genetics, because you inherit things. um, And in fact, actually, to bring it back to race, right, um, the inheritance of wealth is really the the, the ultimate um, uh, racist thing that we have here is that the concentration Mm -hmm. of wealth uh, in families is really what this comes back to. And that's an inheritance. You 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 inherit and, and, and it doesn't matter what you have in your DNA. You inherit things. Right. That's, that's such, I feel like we could, we could do like 20 episodes from all of these like misconceptions that have come up because I think that is one of what you inherit, what you don't, Mm -hmm. um, who you inherit it from. Yeah. I, to Margaret's point, we have, there's so many, so many more things and I'm sure for you too, as a science communicator and professor, you are always finding new things that are catching your interest. So again, we just appreciate you being on with us. Yeah. It's been such a joy. Um, where where can we find you if we want to we want to get in contact with you or find out more about your work, Nathan? Okay, well, uh, I am on Twitter. I hate it, but I'm on it. Um, <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter. I'm also on Tumblr, but I don't check that anymore. Um, also, I mean, you can anybody can email me. That's always the best thing. If you just Google me, my, I'm, as far as I know, I'm the only Nathan Lentz uh, in, in, uh, active in this area anyway. Um, so mm-hmm. you can find me and email me up through my college website or um, uh, I, I run the Human Evolution blog. Uh, so the human evolution blog.com. But if you just put in human evolution blog, I'm, you know, the top hit or second hit or something like that. Um, so I, I don't post as often as I wish I did, but I'm on that. 
Um, you know, I write for Psychology Today, that kind of stuff. So just uh, if you just Google Nathan Lentz, there's, there's not a lot of us out there. So you'll find me. Sure. <laughs> well, thank you again. We've loved talking to you. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Um, if any of you listeners like this episode or any of our others, please rate us and leave a quick review. Written reviews help new listeners decide if they want to give us a try. So uh, help us and help new listeners out by leaving us a review. And you can hear more content like this from our sister wife podcast <laughs> from U to O, hosted by my co-host, Margaret. Don't Pee on Your Leg and Other Scientific Misconceptions is a podcast produced by Two Birds, One Scone. Articles, blog posts, and more about what you can do every day to conserve our environment can be found at twobirdsonescone.org. Our original theme music is by Camillo. And if you have a scientific misconception that you'd like explained or you want to provide feedback to us, go ahead and email us at don'tpeeonyourleg at gmail.com. Thank you again, Nathan. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I had a great time. We also want to remind everyone that there is still time to register to vote, but registration deadlines are fast approaching. Many voter registration deadlines are in early October. You can find more information at vote.gov. The blog 538 is also keeping an updated guide of how to vote in your state, how to vote early, and how to request a mail-in absentee ballot. Check your registration now, even if you're super, super, super sure you've registered. And please, please vote. Have Have a a great great week. week!